Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name's Jason Carty. My name's Stephen Cockcroft. And we're live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. Last week, we did part one on the Ed Sullivan shows and the Beatles appearance on the Ed Sullivan show. And it uh, was a, a quite meandering path to get us to the day itself when uh, the band were due to appear on the show, which went out on the 9th of February, 1964. So today, we're going to start from their arrival in New York and trace their relationship with Ed Sullivan over uh, the subsequent years. Um as we said uh, last week, they they land on the um, uh, the the seventh of February, and something we kind of glossed over was the JFK press conference, which is something that you know when you think of the Beatles getting to America is a really uh, you know really pertinent moment. It's really iconic. Yes, I mean this is I suppose their first live appearance on American television. That is the true uh, live appearance. Uh, yeah. You know that that that's the true live appearance, and um, you know even. Uh, given the fact that they've been used to, to to this kind of press conference or this kind of interview in the UK, this you imagine they must have been petrified, but they don't look petrified. They don't look nervous. They 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 look incredibly relaxed. Um, yes. I mean, they know they know they're performing, and it's quite a performance. It is, and it, it was colorized for the Ron Howard film. Colorized quite badly, I thought. But yeah, uh, it, it's it's uh, it, it, you know they are supremely confident, and as you say, if they're nervous, they don't show it. But it's it's the press conference where you know um, you know the, the you know the, the press just clamoring over them, and they're not singing. You know, but they are doing a performance and it's all part yeah. of priming the pump for Sullivan. So it's all like, when you sing a song, well, you'll have to pay us first. Yeah. You know, why is it so successful if we knew we'd form a group and be managers? All that stuff, uh, which you assume is coming off the top of their heads, is happening in uh, real life. Yes. yes. I mean, it, the, again, if this were happening today or at any point after the Beatles had done that first press conference, these these would be scripted answers. Yeah, uh, and some PR guy would have been saying this. If they ask you this, then say this. If they ask you this, then say that. But clearly, they're not good enough actors to pull that off. I mean, this is this is clearly a spontaneous yeah. uh, set of responses, um, and it's it's fantastic. And uh, the the absolute star of the show for me there is uh, Ringo. Ringo is totally happy. Like he's yeah, he's, he's really happy. And you, we talk about this. You know, how true are these kind of codified personalities of the Beatles? But you know, John is definitely being a bit sarcastic. Ringo is definitely being the Beatles fan in the room. And, you know, uh, Paul and George are just having a hoot as well. And it's charismatic and it is genuinely funny. They are genuinely making that room laugh. 
Yes, yes. I mean, the, the, you know, the press are there, you imagine, because of the screaming fans, because of the Beatlemania phenomenon that they've been reading about. That's, you know, they, they have no experience of this band other than these are some long-haired guys uh, from England uh, that, 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 that have this kind of uh, hysteria going on in England. What are they going to be like? And yep. they absolutely charm the press. Absolutely. Because that, that press conference could have gone really badly. Yes, you know, um, it could have been very confrontational. You know, if it, it, yeah, yeah. You're kind of thinking if if Lennon had had switched on to full kind of sarcastic uh, <laughs> uh, mode and just it could have it could have been very combative and 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 very uh, it could have been a train wreck. Well, you know, it's funny how, you know, the press conference becomes a staple of Beatle appearances, you know, well into 66, you know, and by the 66 press conferences, they are combative and they are kind of surly and rude. And you're like, what benefit is then of them doing a press conference in 1966? How many more tickets is that going to sell particularly? Um, But back then, you know, it's again, it's another one of these happy accidents, happy lineups that they are in good form. The press are in good form. They are number one. But it's also mindful that, the Ed Sullivan show, when it goes out two nights later, isn't getting high ratings because it's the Ed Sullivan show. It's because of all this stuff that is happening in the run up to February the 9th. That's it. It's all building up. Uh, the news reports, uh, the, the the single taking off, but also this press conference. And again, it, it, you know, it's it's perhaps difficult to overstate the impact of that press conference. Yeah. So that's February the 7th. They go off to the Plaza Hotel and, uh, you know, February the 8th is due to be the day before the show and it's due to be rehearsal day. What could possibly go wrong? Well, yeah. George's well, throat goes wrong. George's throat goes wrong. Uh, you know, George, George's throat goes wrong all the way from here up to 1974. You know, this is a recurring... Uh, yeah, <laughs> well, George, he, he doesn't George's get his tonsils out. He, get, he spends two weeks in hospitals in 69 getting his tonsils out. Yeah. So he's waiting a long time to get his tonsils out. Yeah. Also, yeah. you did, wouldn't get two weeks in hospital these days for getting your tonsils out, I'll tell he you. Didn't, he didn't have time to get his tonsils out before 1969. That's, That's true. Yeah, I know. And have those tonsils come up for auction, I wonder? Who knows? Uh, um, some, do- <laughs> some doctor somewhere has those. You know what doctors are like. Bronze. They, they and on a wall. Yeah. <laughs> um, but George does have a sore throat because their first kind of public activity on the, the morning of the 8th of February before rehearsal is a photo shoot out in Central Park. And again, these are kind of famous, iconic photos, but you look yeah. at them and it is just John, Paul and Ringo. George is, is not there. Um, no. And I mean, again, you must, you must imagine what that was like. You know, you, you get there, you've got a number one single, you, everything's going fantastically well. And then suddenly, uh, you know, your lead guitar player is uh, laid low. And his sister talks about this. Um, so his sister, we need reminding, lives in North America. And George yes. had visited her in 1963 and had spent a, a brief time in New York in 63 as part of his visit to her. Uh, and yes. she comes up to New York uh, to be with George for this appearance. Yes, that's right. So Louise Harrison or Louise Caldwell, uh, uh, as she was, and she talks about this and she said he had a temperature of 104. They were pumping him full of drugs. They, they were going to get a nurse to come and, and kind of sit with him. And um, she says, you know, the doctor then realized that she was there. She was his sister and uh, she was tasked with the with, with this sort of looking after him. But, uh, you know, he made a joke about, you you're the only female in New York that can function normally. In, in, in <laughs> yes. the um, but but she, she it all rests on her getting him well enough uh, yeah. to, to to get. And they, they clearly take this 
very seriously because he just doesn't leave the room, I think, yeah. um, for any of the promotional activities that are going going on. It's all eyes are on the show. The show is the important thing. And yeah, it's a bit like uh, Pink Floyd's Comfortably Numb. You know, she is administering the medicines to try and get yeah. him ready to, so he can do the show. But, but let's let let's stress that uh, administering everything legally, legal medicines, legal yes. medicine is legal medicine. So so meanwhile, John Paul and Ringo are out wandering around Central Park within view, within sight of the Dakota Building, um, which is you know interesting foreshadowing. And uh, you know they're, they're getting their photo taken. There's another press conference in the morning. This this kind of split between John Paul Ringo and George, this leads into the legend of the Rickenbacker, doesn't it? Yes, this is a this is an interesting uh, uh, story. So uh, George is alone, or is is alone of the four uh, in the hotel, and uh, the the story, the couple of stories about how how George gets his uh, Rickenbacker twelve string guitar, and the best one is that the president of the company shows up with the guitar, intending to give the guitar to John. Of course, John isn't there. George is there, and he nabs the guitar uh, for himself, which is which is a good good story, but. Um, in, in 2017, there was an article in Guitar World that, that sort of gives a little bit more background. And what they say is that Francis C. Hall, who was the president of uh, Rickenbacker, which is a California-based company, he had actually spoken to Epstein before they arrived in the U.S. and arranged a meeting with the group. So, again, there's this idea that, uh, you know, the guys at Rickenbacker can see what's what, what's happening, what way the wind is blowing, and they, they've set this up. Um he arrives at the Savoy Hilton in New York and he shows the band several different models. Lennon tries out the 12 string, but um, he thinks, no, this would actually be more suitable for George, who is still back at the plaza. And uh, he gets it that way. So it's not that he stole uh, uh, the, guitar, the guitar from from uh, John. And it was only the second uh, Rickenbacker 12 string ever made. I know. And it, it, it goes on to... Uh, cast a long shadow and play a big part. You know, George loves the guitar, doesn't he? He he absolutely falls in love with this. He he said, uh, it, "It's I'm not a guitar uh, person, but uh, he says it's to do with the fact that it's it's much more easy easily tuned than any twelve string he'd ever had before." And uh, it it just if you think about how influential that becomes across Hard Day's Night, help ticket to ride, mm. all you know, uh, and even the look of it is yeah. is uh, you know it's as iconic as as Paul's Hoffner bass. So that afternoon, uh, you know, about lunchtime, the Beatles without George go by limousine uh, just a few blocks over from the plaza to uh, Studio 50 slash the Ed Sullivan Theatre. Um, you know, and then it's, you know, it's full on Beatle hysteria, you know, fans on the cars, people going crazy, <laughs> police officers everywhere, you know, the real deal uh, again yes. before they've even appeared on the show. So it's all mounting and Lord knows what the, the, you know, the Ed Sullivan production staff must have known that they had a, a big thing on their hands or a big thing brewing. But it's Neil Aspinall who stands in for George when they spend that afternoon rehearsing. Yes, yes. Uh, so Neil, uh, the road manager, is there and uh, they have got this all marked out and blocked out. So they need somebody to stand in and hold hold the guitar. And there, there's some very uh, sort of funny photographs that just don't look right because it's yeah. the band standing there and suddenly it's Neil standing holding a guitar instead of George. And- well, you're, you're, you're very close to a, a Jimmy Nickel moment, you know. I can't imagine the stress that 
Brian must have been feeling about, you know, getting George match yeah. fit. Uh, you know, we don't really know how close it came to him uh, not making it, but it, it just really wasn't an option. You know, there was no way you could, like you kind of think of, you know, geez, if George really hadn't been able to do it, would they've pulled out? Could they've gotten somebody else? It just, it's well, hard well, to fathom. Well, they do, they do have a plan B. Um, there, there's a production assistant called Vince Calandra, and he talks about this because at oh, one yeah. point he, he stands in and he said, uh, you know, Ed Sullivan is running around with a wig on, a beetle wig. <laughs> and he's saying, you know, he'd better show up because if not, I'll be the fourth beetle. So, yeah, you know. That, uh, that might not have worked. That would have been brilliant. <laughs> um, so they spent the afternoon rehearsing and, you know, it might seem like an awful lot of rehearsal for a TV show, but I think it makes perfect sense. I know even these days, stuff like Later with Jules Holland has a full day blocked of rehearsals before they, they put the show on air. But you see the camera moves, that stuff's not being spontaneously done. No, they, they, they have this all, all kind of blocked out and um, Ringo tells a story and says, you know, we did all that. We had chalk marks on the floor where we were going to stand. And then, you know, we, we left and then a cleaner came in and uh, wiped all the chalk mark off the floor. Yes. Supposedly. Um, and there was also, you know, there was also the question of trying to manipulate the sound equipment, wasn't there, to try and get a decent sound as well? Yes, Ringo is in, in anthology is 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 pretty uh, scathing about that and saying, you know, it was really bad sound equipment and it was all very hastily done. And he, he he's he's not impressed in anthology with with the sound. And if you watch the shows, the thing that strikes me is um, there's a lot of background sound. Yeah, you so, can hear the show happening, getting ready, setting up between bits yeah, and pieces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So when Sullivan's talking, you can hear people moving the set around. And, and, and when other acts are on and doing singing and dancing, as they move around the set, you can hear the kind of clump, clump, clump of their feet on the... It's, it's really badly mic'd. Yeah. Um, but February the 9th is D-Day, the, the day of the broadcast. And up in the morning, there's another group of uh, rehearsals ready. George is still ill. And so Neil Aspinall is still the, the George yep. stand-in for camera blocking and camera shots. And hopefully, you know, George's sister Louise is, is really working hard to get George uh, ready. Um, but they, they do one last round of preparations and cometh the hour, George is ready. But it is worth keeping in mind that, you know, when the show goes live on that Sunday evening, February the 9th at eight o'clock, um, you know, John, Paul and Ringo all know the layout, the set out. They yes. know what's going to happen. But George is kind of floating into this essentially for the first time. He has not rehearsed at all. No, he's not been in the studio before. Uh, he's yeah. not been a party to this at all. So, uh, yeah, he's 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 got to just stand there and follow the cues. Yeah. So, you know, the actual show itself, there might not be much that we need to say. It's become a you know a milestone in American popular culture. It, it set off uh, the the British invasion, so to speak. Um, you know, let you know, the statistics are that it went out live from uh, 8 p.m. to 9 p.m. Uh, as I said, it was a Sunday night. Inside the studio itself, there was just 728 people, but apparently uh, 50,000 requested a ticket for the show, which is uh, nice. Um, and the number that was given was that it, it had 73.7 million viewers uh, across uh, 23.2 two million homes in the United States. At that time, the biggest viewing figures for any television show uh, in American history. And, you know, it's become quite iconic. And the 
the, the show has two appearances by the Beatles at the top and tail of the show. And at the start of the show, uh, Sullivan comes out and he, he, he opens with the famous telegram, doesn't he? Yes. Yeah, so uh, he, he announces that uh, Elvis Presley and his manager, uh, Colonel Tom Parker, have sent a telegram saying, congratulations on your appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show and your visit to America. We hope your engagement will be a successful one and your visit pleasant. Give our best, Mr. Sullivan. Sincerely, Elvis and the Colonel. Um, so, so, so within those few weeks, the Beatles are on the consciousness of Elvis. They, 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 they must. Uh, you, you wonder what the purpose of that was. Was it to get a bit of publicity off the back of the I, Beatles? Was it to fe- were they fearing for their future? I think, I think this is just to to, to remind everyone that uh, you know, regardless of these English guys, don't forget <laughs> it's Elvis and the Colonel. And of course, the the irony is Elvis knew nothing about this. This is just the Colonel yes, <laughs> sending yeah, yeah, this yeah. telegram. Uh, I think this is just uh, you know, he, as you say, him trying to keep Elvis front and center. Don't be distracted by this. Um, uh, Sullivan had given the Beatles the telegram before the show, uh, to which George said, Elvis who? <laughs> so, yeah. you know, good old they, George. Good old George. They are, they, are, uh, they, are, they are at the height of their powers. So, you know, it, Sullivan famously introduces them. The audience goes wild. And of course, they kick off into All My Lovin'. Yes. Uh, which, which is... Which I'm assuming is, everybody listening to this has seen the Beatles do All My Loving on the Ed Sullivan show. Yeah, it, you, would, it, you would think so. Um, and, you know, to, 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 you know it's, it's, it is iconic to paraphrase Dave Letterman many years later, you know, they are performing in the midst of free floating geometric shapes. Um, but you can see how all that blocking works in terms of camera yes. angles, the camera swooping up towards Ringo. And what I've noticed years later is uh, because these shows came out on VHS and DVD uh, and they came out as complete shows, is that when you watch the shows as complete episodes, the Beatles do seem like they have just landed from space. I don't know whether that's my own, you know, um, uh, you know, my own feelings because I just like the Beatles so much and I'm glad to see them. But you, you watch them in the context of the show and it's really strong what they're doing. You can understand. No, I absolutely agree with you. I watched them all again uh, ahead of this. And um, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it, it's like they've it, perhaps not landed from another planet, but landed from another time. Yeah. Um, you know, they are surrounded by uh magicians doing card tricks and weird puppet shows and very bad comedy routines and dancers. And suddenly you've got this, this rock and roll group and they're playing live Yeah, and um, they're having a ball and you, you can understand why they just, they just stand out uh, yeah. compared with everything. It's like, okay, all of this is old, all of this is in the past and we're here and we are the future. It's, it's, it's incredibly striking. And they start with the song, All My Loving, which, uh, you know, let's just t- take a second to think that's not a single, that's an album track. They're, they're yeah. t- and it's an album track that wouldn't be known in America yet. So they're no. opening with this unknown song that they wrote themselves. And it is, it is the perfect choice. It is the uh, perfect choice, but it's also, it's also, a kind of difficult, you know, a, a difficult song to play live in the sense that it's very precise. You know, yes. it's got those very kind of stop start uh, uh, sections to it. And yeah. uh, it's a perfect performance. It's a, it's, it's a kind of slap in the face. You know, it really wakes you up. 
considering everything that had happened in the run-up, you know, because out of all their performances, it's the first show that's the most important. And out of all the bits in the first show, it's the first song that's the most important. And considering the road they took to get there, including George being sick and everything else. And as you say, it's a song that is slightly tricky. It doesn't have an intro, for instance. It starts no. with, uh, you know, just a, a clear vocal. The fact that that's the song out of all the five songs they performed that night that needs to matter, that that lands so perfectly. And George, who, you know, hadn't rehearsed, yes. he nails that solo. In fact, George, yeah. you know, uh, we've talked about this before amongst ourselves, is what's striking about that first performance is John is, his mic is down. It's very much a Paul performance. And, you know, George does his solo to camera as if, He's the coolest guy in the world. Yeah. Ringo is on his riser. John is a little bit uh, missing or mixed down. I know he seems to have mic issues. Yeah, it's it, it, it's funny the way it's staged because the, 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 they're, they're not lined up sort of equally across the stage. John's mic is actually quite further forward, but in order to, but in the camera angle, then they look more together. But if you look at the screen time that they get, it's all about Paul. Yeah. Yeah. Um, then uh, George and then John and Ringo sort of get equal mic time. And John is very much the third man yeah. uh, in, in this show. Um, and it does one, I do sometimes wonder is, is, is George so relaxed because he didn't have a rehearsal Yes, because he isn't as conscious of having to stand here or do these particular reasons, or is he just, pump full of uh, drugs. I don't know. <laughs> well, I think he's also, you know, he's, he, he, there's a certain novelty to George because he's doing it for the first time as well. But yeah. it, it goes to show how well rehearsed and how tight they are. Um, and and George, George sort of moves between the two microphones. You know, he doesn't have a mic of his own. So he's yeah. moving between uh, Paul's mic and John's mic. And he, it works perfect for someone that hasn't rehearsed the camera blocking. Yeah. He's, he's completely there. You know, he's, he's completely across it. So for the first part of the show, they do three songs, All My Loving, Till There Was You, and She Loves You. It's kind of, it's not the same songs as the Royal Variety performance, but it's kind of the same type of energy yeah. as the Royal Variety yeah. performance. And it's, you know, I, I always find for both, you know, the Royal Variety performance in Ed Sullivan, Till There Was You is just one of those choices. You're like, really? <laughs> but, you know, they, they, they still believed at that point the Beatles in showing their versatility and till there was you is also very much a Paul and George highlight George nailing that really tricky solo yep. and Paul doing his doe eyed, you know, silver bells, it's, whatever voice. Yes. It, and it's, 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 you know, it's a song that the mums and dads will know. Well, you know, after, so, uh, after the punch in the face of all my love and, you know, the mums and dads like, what, you know, what is this? You yeah. know, till there was you is pretty easy to understand. I, I, th I think, I think it's very clever. Yeah. Because and in the same way that the Royal Variety Show performance was clever because yeah. they're they're explaining to the mums and dads almost, you know, they, they, and they don't open with she loves you or they don't open with I want to hold your hand. Yeah, they open which... with all, all my loving is a kind of great song. It's just yeah. a great song. Then they hit the mums and dads with, you know, don't be too concerned. You know, it's it's we're 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 nice boys and uh, we're, we're not threatening and here's a show tune here's a song everyone will know and then they go into She Loves You She Loves You and it's during Till There Was You that the famous captions come up you know <laughs> how we you know here's Paul here's George here's Ringo here's John sorry girls He's married. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you can kind of, I mean, it's so cheesy. Yes. So cheesy. Um, and then they do She Loves You. And then that's the end of their first bunch of songs. The crowd goes wild. And Ed Sullivan 
needs to tell everyone to just calm down. Will you all yes, just because, take? Because now we've got musicians and Tessie O'Shea and the cast from Oliver and, you know. It, well, the next person up is a guy called Fred Capps. And you got to feel sorry for Fred Capps, who was the act on after the Beatles. He was a pre-recorded so that they could change the set around for, for the Oliver performance. And he's a magician who did not go down well because nobody really was paying any attention. Everyone was just recovery. Yeah. And he's actually a famous uh, magician. His floating court trick is a famous trick. He was, he was a guest on Parkinson in the seventies. He was a, you know, a bit of a legend, but he kind of, you know, you, you go Google him now and he's like the poor sod who had to follow the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, yeah. you know? But he's, yeah, but he's doing card tricks. He's I know. doing, you know, this thing where there's salt endlessly pouring out of his yeah. hand. I mean, it, it's, it's, it would have been good in its time, but it's it's odd how 73 million viewers doesn't necessarily change the fortunes of Fred Capps for the no, rest of his days. No, no um, certainly not. And, and, and well, Sullivan, but we're still yeah. we're still talking about him. We're this still is talking true. About him. This is true. Uh, but the kind this, of fame. This isn't uh, the Fred Capps podcast, I'm afraid. Um, and you know the audience are a bit unruly. Uh, Ed Sullivan says at one point, "If you don't keep quiet, I'm going to send for a barber." Hilarious. But yeah. the other fun fact of that show was that uh, Davy Jones from the Monkees is on that show. Yes, I watched uh, the whole show just to see <laughs> Davy Jones. So at that time, Davy Jones was a teenage star who was appearing on Broadway in Lionel Bar. Oliver playing the Artful Dodger, uh, which he transferred from London to New York. The other side point, the person who filled his role back in London, Phil Collins. Well, uh, as a teenage there star, go. there you go. Can we, can all, we tell, all, the, let's tell roads, the Phil Collins story. All, all roads lead back <laughs> to Phil Collins. But yeah, you watch this show and apart from, you know, when you watch it in, in, in 21st century, apart from the Beatles seeming like they're from space, you're like, hey, there's David Jones from the Monkees appearing on the same show as the Beatles. That's weird. Well, um, he, he does talk about the fact that he, he was, he witnessed the kind of hysteria. Yeah. And said, and I thought, want a bit of that. I thought, I want a bit of that. Yeah, you know, yeah. I want some of that. So, Artful Dodger. Yeah. So, there's, there's, and there's lots of inbuilt advertisements for uh, Anison, which is Anadin. And, you know, is, that, George... is that just a, is that a ripoff to avoid being sued by Anadin? No, or I just, just think it's American... one of these. It's just one of the, it's the same company. I think it's all Bayer Pharmaceuticals. It's just oh, the right. American. They should have, got George, should have got George to, uh, to, 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 you know, I'm hopped up on Anison. I'm, I'm hopped up, yes. <laughs> if you're like me, kids. Uh, Georgia yeah. Brown, Tessie O'Shea, Frank Washington, these are the other guests. But then at the end of the show, uh, the Beatles come out and they do two more songs, which are I Saw Her Standing There and then the number one hit on the land, uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand. Because I Saw Her yeah. Standing There is the B-side in the US, isn't it? To I Want to yes, Hold Your Hand. Yes. So they did the B-side and the A-side uh, and they end with I Want to Hold Your Hand. But almost when you're watching the show, it's not that the damage has been done, but all the stuff that has happened has happened right at the start. You know, they've already won when they yes. come back at the end of the show. Absolutely. They, 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 they must be standing in the wings or sitting in the dressing room thinking, you know, we've done it. We, yeah. we that's it. You know, we're, we're, we've arrived. But I never get, you never get a sense from them that they were worried about, Oh, are we going to do it? They were just like, you know, they've always, and they've spoken about this in interviews since that, their supreme self-confidence of, well, you know, if we get to go to Ed Sullivan, of course we're going to ace it. You know, that was kind yeah. of the take on it, you know, so that you know, Brian you know, does you, his part of the deal to get them there and they'll do their part of the deal to just knock it out of the park. Yeah, but you think if somebody picked up the phone to you and me and said, look, uh, you, you know, in, in two months' time, we want you to go on the the Stephen Colbert show and, and there's going to be 70, 73 million people watching you. <laughs> you I'm ready. up for that. Uh, I, you're, I totally you're good. Yeah. I, you know, there, there's no sign of, of, of nerves at no. all. Um, 
the, the, the performance of I Saw Her Standing There and I Want to Hold Your Hand, a little bit more kind of looser, I think, than, than, than what's going on in the first half. Yeah. Um, and I think that, 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 that just must reflect the fact that they, they, they kind of realize, you know, uh, everything's changed. It. Yeah. 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 Uh, and after the show, uh, Murray the K takes uh, John Paul and Ringo to the Playboy Club and then onto the Peppermint Lounge. So obviously, George went back to recover some more. He's still not yeah. well. And they danced the twist until 4 a.m. But here's it, it's almost immediately, though, that the legend kicks in the legend of the Ed Sullivan shows, you know? Yes. And so, um, you know, Paul in the anthology says, you know, um, one of the largest viewings ever seen in the States. You know, we came out of nowhere with funny hair. Well, that's not true. They weren't out of nowhere. They were the number no. one act in the land. Yes, been on a yes. couple of TV shows already. Um, you know, the hairdo broke us more than the music. I don't think so. Um, uh, a lot of fathers turned it off, but a lot of mothers and children made us keep it on. Now all those children are grown up and they're telling us they remember it like where we were when Kennedy was shot. I meet people like Dan Aykroyd saying... I remember that Sunday night. We didn't know what had hit us. Uh, suddenly the Beatles. Uh, and again, this is all legend building because, you know, as we said before, Ed Sullivan had had, you know, Elvis on. He'd had Bo Diddley on. He'd had Bill Haley on. You know, th- th- yeah, this yeah, stuff wasn't, so- an, it's not like there was zero. And you had also the whole, um, uh, you know, Dick Clark enterprise. You know, there was rock and yes. roll on American television. It just yeah, some of it yes. wasn't very good. Some of it wasn't very good. But Sullivan, Sullivan in particular, uh, you know, was was breaking these acts. I mean, he 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 was he 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 had rock and roll on before. So I think that's Paul. I I think this is the point we touched on last week, which is this idea that they the Beatles themselves uh, sort of they remember the legend rather than what actually happened. Perhaps yeah. you know. Um, one big legend is that the crime rate fell while the Beatles were on. So it's one hour of television. It's seventy three million viewers, eight to nine p.m. And uh, something that's endlessly repeated is that there was no crime committed in America. And the Beatles even say this themselves. And yes. I know I can rely on you, Stephen, to tell me that that's a total that's untruth. A total lie. <laughs> <laughs> it's not true. There were, there were hubcaps stolen in, in, in New York. Where this comes from is... Uh, a chap called B.F. Henry, uh, who was the editor, news editor at the Washington Post. And he quipped that, you know, during the hour that the, they were on Ed Sullivan, there wasn't a hubcap stolen in America. And th- this, this has become, oh, isn't this marvelous? The Beatles united everybody. and But that's not what he was intending by that. Yeah. He was basically saying all the hoodlums, all the delinquents yes. who would otherwise be out stealing hubcaps were sitting in front of the TV um, uh, watching the Beatles, so it was it was put down, kind of reflecting that idea that uh, adults had that you know uh, they, the Beatles were appealing to the unsavory side of uh, American youth. And then uh, one of his columnists repeated it in 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 the Washington Post, uh, Bill Gold. Then it was picked up by Newsweek, and it, this this became the legend. But actually, Gold in a follow up. Yeah. So I made a spoof out of it. And he said, uh, well, it's with a heavy heart that I must inform Newsweek that the report was not true and that uh, Mr. Lawrence Fellance of 307 East Graveson Street, Alexandria, had his car car parked on church property during that hour and all four of his hubcaps were stolen. Um, we regret that somewhere in Alexandria there lives a hipster who is too poor to own a TV set. So, uh, you know, it's all intended to be a put down. Yeah, it's, it's a become, joke that's got out of hand. It's, it's a yeah. joke that's got out of hand. And it's a joke that has 
become taken as a compliment that, that, that it somehow united everyone yeah. and, uh, kind of peace and love. And, you know, George tells this story as a fact yeah. and, and, and in America, there was no crime. Yeah. You know? and, and if you do take a step back and you think about it and you're like, nobody was reporting crime figures by the hour in 1964. So it's, it's a load of hooey there. I've said it. Oh, you're, 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 you've got to print the legend. <laughs> well, it is a, it's a total print the legend moment. Um, but it was obvious the next day, Monday, the 10th of February, that the Beatles were, uh, you know, the kings of the world. Um, but don't forget, the Beatles had signed up for three Ed Sullivan shows uh, yeah. on the 9th and on the 16th. And the decision was made that there would also be an appearance on the on the 23rd. Um, and so there is a week of activity to get them from New York, uh, the Ed Sullivan show in New York on the 9th of February to the following week's show, which was a remote show that was coming uh, from Florida, Miami, Florida on Sunday, February the 16th. And what's interesting is that the Beatles had a, a you know, a, a very full calendar on the week in between. So, you know, briefly to go through that, they, they take a train down to Washington and they do a, a big concert in Washington, D.C. that's filmed for broadcast a few days later on a, a, an internal circuit. And we still have that film. It's quite fascinating to see them play the Washington Coliseum on Tuesday, the 11th of February. Yes, this is this is this is the show where uh, Ringo is sort of in the middle of the stage, and 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 they have to the, the every couple of songs, yeah, yeah, they're completely surrounded by the audience, so they they have to kind of stop and turn the drum kit um, so that you get you know each each segment of the audience gets to see Ringo for two songs or three songs. <laughs> it's very it's very striking, Bizarre. and you see Neil and Mal kind of running on stage to help move the drum riser around. It's very yeah. very cool. Then they travel back to New York on Wednesday, the twelfth of February, for a show in Carnegie Hall. That's a, a you know that's a small audience of 2,000, two to 3,000. Yeah. Sid Bernstein promotes that who, you know, we could do a whole episode on Sid There's Bernstein. There's a whole episode on the Sid Bernstein connection. Yeah. Uh, and that's on Wednesday, the 12th of February. Uh, and then after that, they fly down to Florida to prep for Ed Sullivan, but also to get uh, some days off. To get you some know, to get, sun. Get, just to get, get some sun. So, so they go to take a break. So we might take a break right here and we'll be right back to tell you what happens next. End of part one. Intermission. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. End of intermission. Part two. Welcome back. So the Beatles have a tiny micro break uh, in Miami. So the second Ed Sullivan show is due to be on Sunday, the 16th of February from the Deauville Hotel on Miami Beach. And they fly down to Miami on Thursday, the 13th um, for a little bit of R&R. And, you know, they're undoubtedly kings of the world. And the, the, the few days they spend in Miami is a bit of Beatledom that I really love because they are stars. They are so happy. They are seeing 
you know, Ringo says, you know, he sees palm trees for the first time and <laughs> particularly Ringo, because, you know, you see Ringo now in the, you know, living in LA with, you know, his, his, you know, loving the sunshine, loving the LA life. It all kind of goes it's back like, to, I think that trip to Miami in 1964. Yeah. No, he's living in LA with palm trees of his own. He does. He does have palm trees of his own. And, and so they are, um, you know, there's some iconic stuff that happens during those few days in Miami. The the pictures of them in the pool for Life magazine, where their heads are sticking out of the pool. Uh, yeah. And one of those pictures goes off to be the cover of George Harrison's Early Takes Volume 1 album. You know, all that stuff happens on, on that uh, weekend. And it, I mean, it really must have been insane to have, you know, you kind of come from Liverpool. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, I get, there's this sense that even in, in 1963, 64, England is black and white and America is technicolor. And it probably doesn't get much more technicolor than, than, than Miami. And they're kind of lounging by the pool and they're the whitest people you've ever seen. <laughs> you know? Well, um, they're yeah, just I, dead. They're so pale and they're kind of wearing these little kind of amusing cut off short tarling yes robe things and they're the same color as the white robes well it's... although although at the time we're talking now international travel is a bit of a pipe dream but certainly back in 1963-64 international travel wasn't particularly common and no. you, you kind of think it's one thing for them to go to new york which is kind of a famous iconic place that you know it, you know it still would have been amazing but there's a certain kind of familiarity if you've seen it in the movies but to then go down to miami beach um you know to to, to actually you know, I, I'm reminded of when I was a kid and you'd get hit by a wall of heat if you went to Spain or somewhere. Yeah, like, yeah. like, like, would they have even had been, uh, you know, uh, experienced just that heat for the first time, you know, on their on their frames and to have access to people with private swimming pools, people lending them boats. They had a security well, is, detail sailing them all around the harbour. Must have been magic. The they're, this is the thing. They're, they're kind of being fated by, by the rich uh, and famous in, in, in Miami. Isn't there yeah. a story where Ringo crashes somebody's boat? They lend him a boat and yeah, he drives it into... Nobody minds. It's, oh, it's fine. Don't worry about it. It's, but because they're experiencing it for the first time, and this is a recurrent theme, they're not jaded of it. You know, they're not cynical about it. And no. it's, you know, that kind of, as I've said before, that kind of early Beatles, just before, like they're still, they're still kind of sarcastic, funny types, but they're not cynical about how magic all of this is just yet. No, they're still doing everything for the first time. Each one of these experiences is a new experience. It hasn't become a treadmill yet. Yeah. Um, so as we head into the weekend, you know, they do a little bit of promo. They do a you know, telephone interview for Dick Clark's bandstand. And uh, they're also calling back to the UK. There's some calls there where they're, they're uh, filling in Brian Matthews about what's going on. But the second appearance that they've scheduled to do on the Ed Sullivan show is, as we said, at the Miami Hotel, the Deauville, where they are staying as well. And it, this is a, a very different type of Ed Sullivan show to the first one. And it's perhaps not obviously quite as iconic or as well remembered. For starters, it's obviously not in the, the Studio 50 theatre. It's in a convention room in a large hotel. So it has an odd vibe once it starts. Yes, it's a very different feel to the whole thing. And uh, this this hotel, the Deauville Hotel, is, is a relatively new hotel. Uh, when they're there, it was built in 1957. It was the hotel of the year. I didn't know that was a, a, thing. a, competi a competition. <laughs> um but it, it's 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 the sort of it, it is kind of redolent of of that older show busy kind yeah. of feel bit bit I suppose a bit like uh, the hotel like the Sands in Vegas. Yeah, Vegas so it, place, it's, yeah. it's played host to Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., uh, Joan Rivers, Jerry Lewis. You know, 
Kennedy had given a speech there. And um, so it, it, it is a kind of very establishment, established showbiz type thing. And I thought, well, you know, is it, if we do our once we travel restrictions, <laughs> we could we could we could go to the Deauville Hotel and we could we could have like an American nothing is real live Fan episode. Convention. I think but, that'd be a great idea. Except I have to oh. sadly have to tell you that it was closed down in 2017 after an uh, electrical fire. Yeah, um, I think there's a big movement online to try and save it because it still stands, but only just. Yeah, well, if they get that back up and running, I mean, I think I think we can. <laughs> Say to our fans, if if the Deauville Hotel reopens and yeah. and and the petty cash is up to it, we we we'll hold our 2050 convention <laughs> in, in uh, the Deauville in the Deauville Hotel. Well, that's where the Beatles are based, and they're they're enjoying every minute of it, and they rehearse on the Saturday and the Sunday for the show itself. It's a, as I said, it's a slightly different vibe show. Technically, they're not really the headliners. It's. Uh, it's uh, it's Mitzi again. It's who we it's mentioned Mitzi in part you're, one. You're, I, we're going to have to get we're going to have to get in touch with Mitzi Gaynor. Seriously, Mitzi Gaynor, eighty nine, still going strong. A uh, bit of a showbiz legend, which is uh, fantastic. Um, and the show again goes out, uh, you know, at eight pm live and is watched again by seventy odd million people. Uh, uh, and they perform some new songs, some old songs. Um, the, the thing I, I would say that's quite noticeable when you go and watch the show is uh, Ringo. The state of Ringo in that second show is amusing, to say the least. You think he's had too much sun? He's, if you think of Ringo from the first show, he's this big kind of smiling, wobbly headed yeah. guy. You watch him on the second show, his playing, there's nothing to complain about, but he looks ferociously hungover and tired and... It's maybe the sun, a little Jason. bit. Yeah, okay, it's the it's, sun. It's, it's Sorry, sunstroke. pardon me. It's the it's, sun. It's, he's had a little bit too much sun, and possibly <laughs> a little bit, a little bit too much of everything. Perhaps. Yes, he's more heavy lidded than normal. They they perform <laughs> six songs on that second show. Uh, they open with uh, the first part, uh, "She Loves You," "This Boy," and "All My Loving Again." What I would say is, you know, we talked about how in the first episode that they, the first Sullivan show they did, John is a little bit in the back seat, but oh my goodness, that performance of "This Boy." Uh, yes. Lennon is he just nails it it he is just, extraordinary yeah and, and I mean it, again that that is not an easy song to do live those harmonies and they they and Lennon in particular just dominates in a way that he doesn't his personality is coming across yeah in a way and he's clearly having a ball as well and you maybe do get a sense that perhaps in that initial show he is the one that that was conscious of how much was hanging on this or, yeah uh, but by the time they get to the second show, it's a much more relaxed performance. It's a slightly looser. Yes. They know, they know they, they, America is theirs. Yes. They're, they're proving themselves in the first one. For the second one, it's very much, it's us. And you know, it's us. And this is, yeah. this is what we do. And again, you have to remind yourself that this boy is a, an original song that is not particularly well known um, that would have, you know, there's aspects of the songs that are familiar, you know, in terms of, you know, kind of this kind of to know Miss to love him type vibe or yeah. this kind of doo kind of type feel that underlies the whole song. But it is an unknown song. And as you say, it's hairs on the back of the neck when Lennon just steps forward and hits those notes in the middle of the song. And it's the other the two are section, just, yeah, yeah, where he just kind of cuts loose. Yeah, uh, it's it's wonderful. And then um, 
for the second part they do I saw her standing there from me to you and again the number one song uh, I want to hold your hand you know yeah uh, but it is it is a different vibe to the first one uh, you know they they have conquered and they are still number one and they're heading towards that that week when they're going to have the whole top five singles in the in the US charts uh, and in the audience you have Joe Lewis and Sonny Liston it's very much a boxing turn there's a there's a yeah, boxing they match get, they, they, they get a kind of shutout and uh, but yes there's a there's a fight coming there's a fight yes. coming um, and the audience is, is is much bigger than in the theater. Uh, and there's there's a there's a, 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 a there's the story of the kid, isn't there, who somehow manages to, to get yeah. into the audience. Yeah, there's a there, first of all, there's a complete cock up in that the, the audience is two thousand six hundred, and CBS managed to give out three and a half thousand tickets. That's too many so, tickets. <laughs> that's too many tickets. So there's like eight <laughs> or nine hundred people turn up that can't can't get in. But um, I find there's a an eyewitness account. This is this is uh, this. Uh, a 2019 edition of the Miami Herald that I just happened to have lying around the house. Um, And it's a guy called uh, Bob Saxon, who was 16 at the time. And he, he records the fact that, uh, uh, you you know, they kind of headed down to the hotel because they were going to meet the Beatles. And um, he said, there's no way to get in. And so there's thousands of people there. Um, And they walked down a service road along the side of the hotel. There's a vacant catering truck. Uh, They get into the unlocked vehicle and then file out through its back doors and they're in the hotel kitchen. And uh, then one of the, one of the security people gets them. Yeah. Uh, sort of nabs them. And then this is, this is where, you know, if this was happening to one of your children today, you'd be worried. <laughs> uh, he says, uh, some guy wearing a bathrobe and a beach towel over his shoulder said, smoking a big cigar, came in from the pool and said, hey, you boys trying to meet the Beatles? The stranger <laughs> told the sergeant we were with him. And uh, he walked us past all the guests through the lobby into the auditorium and said, there you go. You're on your own from here. And they grabbed front row seats right beside the, the camera guys. Amazing. So you think, who, who is this guy, this benefactor? Um, you know? it's, it's, a, it's, a, it, it's, it's nice that it happened to fans. You know what I mean? Well, well yeah. And, so and there's a he... sense already in that second show of, you know, people who think they're important latching onto the Beatles and wanting to get a bit of that luster. You know what I mean? Well, Which exactly. isn't there with the first show. Exactly. So you say you've got in the show, you've got Sullivan is introducing uh, uh, Joe Louis and Sonny Liston in the audience. And it is a kind of, but this, these guys and 16 year old guys end up in the front row and they say, what happened was George kept opening the curtain <laughs> and sticking his head out and all the girls would scream every time, uh, every time. So they weren't, they weren't interested in the, uh, the, the boxers. They were, they were interested in George. So they, they travel back to the UK and they're back in the UK by the following weekend um, for, uh, you know, and, and on Sunday, the 23rd, of February, they're actually doing a, a UK TV appearance um, uh, with Mike and Bernie Winters. But Sunday, the 23rd of February is also the third Ed Sullivan appearance. And what this is, yeah. is a pre-recorded appearance that they recorded just before their original live performance on the 9th of February. So technically speaking, I know we're contradicting ourselves. George's first performance in the Ed Sullivan Theatre was actually for this pre-record for the February yeah. the 29th. And they've been contracted for the three appearances and assuming you know, we have to assume that, you know, the third appearance could have been put at any point in the future, but Ed Sullivan just decided to make it three weeks in a row because they're the hot property. Who knows how long a, a phenomenon like this can last, really? Well, ex- exactly. I mean, that, this is the point at which everyone is thinking this is uh, any pop group, you know, yeah. is, is only going to have a limited uh, uh, run. So, yeah, uh, th- yeah he's, he's making the most of it. And why not? 
So that third Ed Sullivan show uh, from the, the 23rd, if you watch it again now, Sullivan kind of alludes at the top of the show that the Beatles are pre-recorded. He sort of says, oh, he kind of says, oh, they're back in the UK, but they're with us tonight kind of thing. Um, yeah. But if you weren't really a, you know, maybe people weren't quite as media savvy in 64. It does, particularly at the end, there's a bit where he walks on and shares the stage with the Beatles. Yeah. You could assume that they're still, you know, live yes, on the still, stage they're, in they're, New York. They're still there. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it's interesting that that uh, there's this chap called Ray Block, who is yeah. Sol- Sullivan's uh, musical director. He wasn't impressed uh, yeah. by their performance. And, and, and he said, you know, I give them a year. Mm-hmm. You know, the only thing that's different is the hair. So again, to hear somebody who's completely, you know, has seen them uh, do two shows is completely tone deaf yeah. to what he what he has seen and the impact that's coming and saying, oh, it'll all be over in a year. Well, here, here's here's the thing. This is pre-recorded before their, you know, All My Loving show on the the, the ninth, and it's a pre-record, uh, obviously, on tape. And here's one of my theories, because we talked about how on that, you know, original performance on the ninth, John is a little bit laid back. But yeah. you watch this pre-record, and it's actually very John. And I do yes. wonder if, you know, some people, you know, looked at that and thought, that guy's a bit full on, let's dial him down for the live show. Because this pre-record, which you have to imagine was recorded before the phenomenon had kicked in, um, you know, it opens with John singing lead on Twist and Shout, and then he does Please Please Me, and he's pretty, you know, live and upfront. Yeah. And you kind of wonder, actually, if this had been what people had seen first on February the 9th, would it have had an impact? And it's a good performance, but I think no is the answer. I, I think you're right. I, I, I think if the first thing people had seen was Twist and Shout, yeah. that's, that's not going to do it. You yeah. know, you, you could imagine that would be anticlimactic compared you we've had this build up we, yep. we you know it's a that it's a great song it's a great live song it's a great live performance but i want to hold your hand is the more sophisticated yep song uh it's it's that's the start of the real kind of beatlemania sound all my loving falls into that it's a more sophisticated song and you you could see i i, I think that's a very good point that that uh twist and shout is not representative yeah um and i don't i don't think the impact would have been the same at all no and uh, you know it's it's uh you know it's, it's again one of the happy accents that all my loving had the impact it had this performance is a great performance but it's certainly not as striking as the debut it's even filmed in a much flatter way and maybe that's yes. to do with the fact that it's videotaped and it's being saved for another time the whole show that whole third show is quite odd um you know it has morcom and wise on it who are now obviously institutions over on this side of the atlantic mainly due to their 70s television programs for the BBC, but uh, I, they, yeah. they, they do not get laughs for their I, I, skit. I, I find that very strange to yes. watch that and there being no laughter. Yeah, and I, I did wonder... You, you, just, you just sort of assume that if Morgan Wise come on and do anything, people are going to laugh. And it's, it's not an unfunny it's not unfunny with these sort of glasses and breaking expensive glasses, but... I'm not sure who wrote that sketch that they did on Ed Sullivan, because uh, Eddie Braben is the writer who is credited with them turning into this other thing in the 1970s. Yeah. And what Eddie Braben did was he accentuated the, the personalities and the splits between Eric and Ernie. So Eric becomes the comedy one and Ernie becomes more of the straight man. Whereas you watch the Ed Sullivan one and they're both, it's still very talky kind of American-y uh, yeah. type, uh, type sketch, you know? And, but I, could, and I, I, I was watching it thinking they could have done that sketch 
1973. They could have reworked that sketch. Yes. Um, but it would have the, had the, more the, of Eric's kind of twitches it, and winks yes, and laughs yes, and that kind of stuff. Yes, and Eric and, is much and, more straight in it, which is odd. Yes. Um, but I just find it very odd to be yes. watching something by Morgan Wise that didn't have people laughing and it, it's and, and they're aware of it you can see them you you can see the awareness uh behind their eyes that this yeah. is not uh this is not going down well um so it's it's a, it's a, it's a curious show this one there's also a lady singing a song about numbers which is phenomenally lame the, the, the out of all those first three shows the only other thing that stuck out for me apart from the Beatles as being something quite extraordinary and out of time is on that third show Cab Calloway is on it and I think yes. he's extraordinary I think I'm it, watching him going oh my word this is uh you know, and, and when Cab Calloway is on the Ed Sullivan show in 64, I looked it up. He was 56 years of age. He had, you know, Ed Sullivan refers to him coming through the Cotton Club. And Cab Calloway is extraordinary to watch. It, it, that, that, uh, that's very funny. We, we haven't talked about this, but that no. is the only, that is the only other performance that I thought was worth tuning into. And I, I hadn't, until he suddenly appeared, until Sullivan suddenly, I, I wasn't, sort of aware or conscious that he was on the show. Yeah. And you're thinking, this is somebody from another era. Yeah. But yet his performance is the kind of second most compelling thing on that show. It's yeah. an incredible, it's an incredible performance. It's an incredible performance. And you think of the arc of his career, and this isn't the Cab Calloway podcast, but you know, he then goes on to- We should do a Cab Calloway podcast. <laughs> the kids want it. Uh, <laughs> but like you think he goes on to appear in the Blues Brothers. When I was a kid, he was in adverts for hula hoop snacks on British television. Yeah. He had a long and amazing career. And was can, a, I, can, I, can I make a confession here? Go on. I have never seen the Blues Brothers. Um, you know what? It's one of those movies that even if you haven't seen it, you kind of have I, seen it. You, you probably kind know exactly of, what it's about. I kind of know what it's about. Yeah. And I have seen, but I just, uh, can I also make another confession and say I don't like Dan Aykroyd? Oh, okay. Not even uh, not even his appearance in the Spies Like Us video. Paul's well, that's, last obviously, hit. that's obviously the highlight of his entire career. No, I just, I just, I, yeah, I just, I just yeah. never got it. I just never got it. Sorry, um, we've lost that. We're definitely here. We go off, off, uh, off uh, on a tangent. Uh, the the show ends. This third appearance appears again. It's a pre-record with "I want to hold your hand." Uh, Paul's mic seems to take over on this again, and Paul's voice seems to dominate. So maybe this is the start where they're switching the mics around for the live performance. You know? Yeah. Well, did you notice there's that one performance where John's mic keeps falling? Yes, and he keeps topping and, it back uh, up, and and he has to keep moving. So you think like you think Paul's been out with a little screwdriver on loosening it up before this performance (laughs) but what's what's you know you you kind of think that you know other bands would have been you know let's get a paul one let's get a john one let's divvy it up but they were such a unit it just didn't matter didn't seem Uh, to matter and that's the good thing um so that's the third appearance in three weeks and they're back in uh the uk and basically their their appearance on the ed sullivan show has done its job but there is a bit of an afterlife that we need to talk about There's, there's there's one or two other kind of postscripts to all of this there is a fourth appearance of the beatles on the ed sullivan show in 1963. On the 26th of May, uh, there's a filmed insert shown uh, where they're being interviewed uh, by Ed Sullivan in London um, uh, at the end of the Hard Day's Night shoot. And it's a brief two-minute piece. You can see it on on YouTube. Um, But they are talking about, uh, you know, they filmed the movie and they're coming back to do their big tour, uh, their 25-day tour in the US in August 1964. And we kind of think sometimes you conflate the first big US tour with the Ed Sullivan show, but they only do those two dates around the Ed Sullivan time. And actually the big tour is in August 64, you know? Um, So they do have that kind of fourth filmed appearance on the Ed Sullivan show. Um, 
But something that is totally forgotten about is the Beatles' fourth appearance in person on The Ed Sullivan Show, which they record on the 14th of August, uh, 1965, and which is broadcast not live, but it goes out a month later on September the 12th, 1965, which is a hugely successful performance. But when you watch that fourth appearance 18 months later, they are changed and the world has changed. It's, it's a different band. Yeah. It's, it's, it's they, very they, different. Yeah, they look different. They sound different. Uh, the way they're being presented is different. Um, as you say, they, they, they're, they're completely in charge now. They're, they're dominating everything. And, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, but it, it's, it's, in a way, it's, it's almost more fascinating to watch. We're kind of so perhaps overly familiar with that, all my loving. Yeah. Punch. Well, it's totally forgotten this kind of performance, I think, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah, um, Like they are, you know, this is, uh, you know, this is kind of post-help. And it's it's essentially the last time that they kind of do a batch of television because they do the same kind of set for Big Night Out over in Blackpool on ITV yes. at the same time. And what I noticed is when you watch these shows, and I said they're on DVD and you can watch the whole shows, uh, you know, the whole unit with inbuilt advertisements and all the rest, that show for is very different. You kind of realize, oh, we're living in a Beatles world. Now, even the first advert that they have in that show four, which is for Lipton's tea, yes. is kind of wacky and fab. And there's a guy driving a boat out of a lake. And it's not like here's a housewife in a in a in a kitchen type advert. It's very yeah. much, you know, oh, it's all fab and youthful and and and, and all the rest. And um you know, Scylla Black is also on the show. So what you also notice is that obviously Brian Epstein has power here to say, oh, yes. you want the Beatles? Well, you're going to take Scylla as well. How about that? Yeah, I, 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 I can understand from that performance, though, why Scylla didn't, didn't take off. It. You know, it's not, it's a very kind of flat What is magic? What is interesting about Scylla is like she's 22 and she's ferociously confident. Like she's, she's very, uh, they're not the best song choices. I agree. No, no. But it's, she's it's, very it, laid back and she's, you know, she's not. Yeah, uh, she, you know, you think that, that how young she is, but they kind of dressed her and styled her hair in a, yeah. and given her song choices, which are from a previous era. Yes. You, you know, it's, it's harking back to, so again, it's this idea, uh, you know, we go right back to Epstein bringing Billy J. Kramer to New York and saying, right, well, you're going to be a cabaret star. I mean, yeah. you know, he's, he's, where do you pitch Scylla Black? Yeah. And, you know, she, she's being pitched, I suppose, where she eventually ended up. You know, she, she was that kind of middle of the road yep. uh, to kind of torch singer. And then she had her own TV show in the UK and, and, and she becomes a bit of an institution in that regard. But, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing there. You think there's nothing that she's doing on this show that the Americans aren't already doing yep. themselves. <laughs> So you watch the show and the Beatles come out, they get called out individually, actually, in the, in the order of John, George, Paul and Ringo, uh, where, you know, Ed kind of shakes their hand and the audience goes crazy. Uh, they look cool. Uh, John Lennon in particular looks extraordinarily cool. Uh, John, John in this from, from, uh, yeah, John is, is just the coolest man on earth at this yeah. point. And, and, and the camera angles they, they put on him when he's singing, which are yeah. kind of slightly, slightly upwards. low down and yeah. upwards are just accentuate the kind of the cheekbones, the nose. He looks phenomenal. He does look phenomenal. And again, as you say, camera angles and all that, there is a pop aesthetic that is creeping into Ed Sullivan that the Beatles have been driving in the culture, which is interesting. They open up with uh, I Feel Fine and you watching 
I feel fine. And it's a masterclass in Ringo because you just see him, you know, riding that ride cymbal, his drumming on that. You could just watch him play that crazy kind of samba beat of I feel fine. Uh, And they're super. And it's worth reminding yourselves in chronology that this is being recorded about two or three days before the Shea Stadium appearance. This is the same week, Um, which means that the next song they sing, which is I'm Down, uh, you know, Lennon is on the Vox Continental organ, which we kind of know from the Shea Stadium performance, which is an always a fun thing to see, always an odd thing to see. And usually it's Lennon messing up the lyrics, but Paul messes up the lyrics to I'm Down, where he sings the second verse first and the first verse second, and they all kind of acknowledge it. And, you know, he, he, starts, uh, he starts the song by saying, man buys ring, woman throws it away, which is always confusing. <laughs> Uh, and then the third song they do, singing his first ever vocal on Ed Sullivan is Ringo. And Ringo does that great introduction. Your favorite, <laughs> your favorite, your favorite song. But he, he introduces himself. He says, and now all nervous and out of tune, it's Ringo. Yeah. And off he goes in tact naturally. And um, uh, yeah, it's, it's again, it's it's charming. A bit, it's it is charming. totally charming. And it's interesting that even in 65, when they're totally cool, help the movie is, is, is about to hit the screens. You know, Ringo is still there doing act naturally. There's still that tiny little bit of let's entertain yeah. everybody there, you know? Yeah. And it's that very self-deprecating introduction is just. Perfect. Perfect. It, it's, it's, it's an odd uh, selection of people on the show. Alan and Rossi are this comedy act who are like a terrible version of uh, Martin and Lewis. And, you know, this crazy guy runs on and they're constantly referencing the Beatles, trying to get the audience to react. Yeah. I'm Ringo's wife. And they run up and down the aisle singing these Beatles spoof lyrics and all the rest. It's just, it's just <laughs> terrible. And then Soupy Sales is on singing a song about the mouse. Oh. And he, ru- he runs up and down the audience as well. And you get a really good view of the theater, which is the, the, the theater that, you know, you Soupy can Sales. I didn't. I never thought Soupy Sales. I didn't think that was actually a, a, a real, real thing, a real person. You You're know? kind of watching Soupy Sales. Oh, Soupy Sales. I mean, maybe I. I don't know. Maybe if, if any listeners out there were watching this contemporaneously, can you tell me whether this was entertaining or whether it was uh, obviously lame at the time? It seemed are lame. We, to are, me. are we? Are we just jaded by 21st century entertainment? Possibly. Entertainment? Uh, but then the Beatles come out at the end to do uh, three more uh, songs, and they start with "Ticket to Ride." And um, that what's interesting about that is they they keep the intro just keeps going on and on and on. Lennon doesn't seem to know when to come when, in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, then Paul does yesterday solo. So uh, again, this is kind of similar as we said in in, in timeline to the big uh, the big the Blackpool Big Night Out performance. Yeah. And Paul is on his own. Yesterday hasn't really dropped yet, and it's always interesting to see how yesterday is highlighted right up front as an important big song and yes, Paul is on his own. Yes. Yeah, they, they they know this. What I what I would say is Paul Paul doesn't look great. You no. know, uh, he's he's I you know Lennon talks about this being his fat Elvis period, this kind of 65 and but he looks great. It's Paul is kind of even more doe-eyed than usual. And yeah. I don't think it and the makeup that they have put on all of them is terrible. Uh, you know, it's, it's, they're very made up and the lighting, it's not, it's not good. The only one of the th- the four of them that comes out well of yeah. uh, looking well, I think is, is John. I mean, Paul subsequently talked in interviews about how nervous he was waiting behind the curtains to go out and perform on Ed Sullivan and how, you know, the, the people pulling back the curtains were like, Hey, there's 70 million people viewing yeah. there. You better be worried. And when you watch it back, you're like, there are no curtains. He just no. goes from singing ticket to ride to singing yes. yesterday. Yes. I don't know what yes. he's remembering uh, yeah. or what he's talking about, but John comes back on at the end and says, thank you, Paul. That was just like him, which yeah. is always fun. Well, uh, and then they end with help. 
Yes. Uh, and what you notice from those three songs, Ticket Try, Just Stay and Help, is they are much more ramshackle than All My Loving. And you get the sense that they are outgrowing it all, that these are songs that are tilting towards studio work than live yeah. work, that they yeah. don't really lend themselves to rocking up as a four piece to a TV studio to, to play at all. Yes, that's right. Uh, you tend to think of uh, 1966 as being the, the the point at which the studio takes over and, and, and live performance starts to suffer. But yeah, there's absolutely the sense that these are studio songs and ramshackle is probably the word. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they are the four main studio performances of the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show. Did they make a difference in their lives? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Uh, yeah. What would their outcome have been if they hadn't done those shows? Well, they were already number one before the Ed Sullivan show. So what would have happened, I wonder? Well, I mean, you, you, you think that the number of people, Dan Aykroyd included, who, <laughs> who says, oh, I remember that night. I remember that Sunday night. And it, it, it seems to have just been such a huge impact that, yeah. you know, it's one thing to have a number one single, but it's quite another to be kind of beamed live into 70 million or into 20 million houses and 70 million people to be watching. You don't get that kind of exposure from a number one yeah. single, you know, no matter how many kind of appearances you do on, on, on uh, you know, Dick Clark's bandstand or whatever. And it, it, it's the fact that Ed Sullivan was a show that was going to be watched by everyone it was a yeah. variety show it, it 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 had something for the kids it had something for the mums and dads and the beatles are just front and center yeah on on three three uh, across that first run uh three shows it is uh, it's definitely worth checking out the dvd i'm i'm not sure whether it's out of print at the minute but the the four complete shows are available on a double dvd and it's 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 as i said it's really interesting to see all of the performances in context there is a, yeah. a bit of a tale uh, of more Ed Sullivan inter, uh, work that we should just mention um, yeah. as we head out here, which is, you know, they would constantly, um, you know, send Ed telegrams and video clips and news and things. You know, there's, there's, you, you can go onto YouTube and look at all these kind of different references. But, you know, some of the films that they record for Paperback Writer, Writer and Rain and Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields Forever, they all get shown on Ed Sullivan, don't they? Yes. I mean, they, they, to, you know, the one thing you would say is they do seem to be aware of how important Ed Sullivan was to them. And, you know, they don't kind of run off to another show or they don't yeah. run off to other media outlets. So they, they, they stick with it. So as you say, they, they are sending telegrams. He is reading out little telegrams on, on air. And this goes all the way up to, um, uh, first day of March, 1970, when, when he airs uh, clips of two of us and, and, let it be ahead of the film coming out. So they 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 are, if you like, constantly paying that debt back. Yes, and you you even you even watch Sullivan presenting those clips in in March 1970, and you know I know we've we've talked about it an awful lot before, but you could easily have watched those clips in March 1970 and think the Beatles were still together, they're still going. He kind of introduced them as, look, here's just the next thing from the Beatles. Here's the Let yes. It Be song. Yes, uh, away yeah. we go. Uh, one of the nice things uh, that to, to dig out was that. Um, they send them, you know, at the end of uh, 1967, uh, when obviously the Beatles are teeing up Magical Mystery Tour and all the rest, uh, Ed Sullivan reads out a telegram from them. That's a very cheery, mop-top-style telegram, wishing him well, yes, because the, yes. the Studio 50 is being renamed the Ed Sullivan Theatre and he's been on the air for 20 seasons and all the rest. And it's, uh, you know, it's just a very, you know, mannerly. And even in that 19... 19- 
67 clip, he, Ed Sullivan is constantly talking about how well-mannered and how well brought up the Beatles yeah. were. It's really, <laughs> there's one clip of him where he's reading one of these telegrams and he says, you know, they come from Liverpool and Liverpool has people from Ireland and Wales and Scotland and all that live there and they all bring up their children right and the Beatles were brought up right and they're very well-mannered and they're, uh, it's, it's quite... Funny. You, can't, you can't deny it. You can't deny it. And it, it's, it's true. It's, it's, can confirm. It's, can confirm. It's, it's, it's interesting the fact that Sullivan, uh, you, you know, there is that relationship, I think, between the Beatles and Sullivan. Uh, yeah. You know, he, he is still supporting them right up to 1970. They are supporting him. They are aware of the debt. He uh, And for all that he references the Beatles, he doesn't, you don't get a sense that he's kind of milking it or no. he's over egging. He's not, he's not over uh, playing his, his part. Um, I mean, if anything, uh, you know, if I were in that position of being the man that had introduced the Beatles to America, you know, I, I never stopped talking about it <laughs> on every chat show. And, and although they had that number one single, I have some statistics here yep. that, that kind of follow on from, from Sullivan. So the first album, the first Capitol album, Meet the Beatles, uh, it gets the number one on Billboard on the 15th of February. So the day before the Sullivan show stays at number one for 11 weeks. It's in the charts for 74 weeks. On the 22nd of February, they go back to the UK. And we talked about there being 4,000 fans when they left. There's 10,000 fans are there to greet them when they come back because their American uh, success is being reported back home uh, because it's such an extraordinary thing. No, yeah. no British act has, has kind of done that. Um, in the nine days that they were in America, 2 million uh, Beatles records were sold in wow. that nine day period. And it said two and a half million dollars worth of Beatles related goods, That's you amazing. know, so sort of uh, uh, memorabilia by April the 4th, this is, this is, I'm going to ask you the question uh, by April uh, the fourth, the Beatles held the top five single positions uh, in in the charts, as well as how many other positions in the Billboard charts? This is the question that this got is, us the podcast. This was, wasn't it? Twelve. Yes. Oh, hey. <laughs> um, and, and then second uh, of May, second of May, the second yeah. album comes out. So Amazing. between May and February. So so all of this, you know, they yeah. were going to get there, but this 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 accelerated everything. The final thing to talk about is that, you know, not many TV appearances generate their own 50th anniversary Grammy special. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and so we should probably end by talking that in February 2014, uh, a TV special called The Night That Changed America, a Grammy salute to the Beatles, uh, was recorded and broadcast celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Beatles appearing on The Ed Sullivan Show. And this is why you're going back to when we started talking about this, you know, you know, Ed Sullivan gets remembered more for the Beatles than anything else. Yes. And I mean, it, it, you know, it's like in 74 when Capitol did their 10 year yeah. anniversary. It's 10 years. It's, it's the Sullivan show. It's 64 is, is year zero for America. Yes. Um, and that TV special, The Night That Changed America, is very, uh, it, it, it's, it's, to me, it seems, un, it seems like a really difficult place because the Beatles as a, uh, uh, like as an entity, you know, they're very protective of their legacy and they're having to step into a Grammy event where Paul and yes. Ringo are together. It's very odd. It's, uh, yeah, they don't. Paul is I mean, never they, comfortable. Ringo is quite happy. 
Paul is yeah, not comfortable. They, no, there, there, there isn't. Uh, you know, Ringo's comfortable anywhere. I think you know, Ringo, Ringo is Ringo. But uh, yeah. no, it's not a comfortable interaction between the two of them. They're they're. It's almost a. They're sort of reduced to the the level of bit players in in yes or something or they're kind of performing fleas. It's 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 yeah, not, it's not like nat- them. There's no, it's not like them. It's not a natural performance. And it's it's you know it's it opens with Ed Sheeran. Oh God, Maroon Five. Oh dear. Uh, Stevie Wonder is fantastic. He does. We can work it out. That cheers yes. everyone up. Um, yeah. And then Ringo does Matchbox and Yoko's in the audience dancing. It's very strange. It's very <laughs> strange. Like, that is slightly surreal. Um, uh, you, you, what I noticed kind of kind of scanning through it again for this is that, you know, Paul's band are great. They come on, they do a few songs and you realise yeah. Paul's band, it's not easy to cover a Beatles song sometimes. All these other bands are kind of half-assing it and Paul's yeah. band come on and they're, they're just uh, they, they They've super. been doing it for years. That is true. You know, that's that's I think I saw them in... 2002 was the first time I saw that band. And it is, uh, you know, the, the most interesting bit is that uh, Letterman does reappear and he walks McCartney and Ringo around the Ed Sullivan Theatre for a specially shot piece, asking them about what they remember. And the answer is they don't really remember much. No, They're just like, maybe we were here, anything. maybe we weren't there. Yeah. I don't know what's going on. Yeah. Um, but he does ask them one good question, which, you know, he asks Ringo, who put together the playlist for the Ed Sullivan show? Like who decided yeah. what songs you were going to sing? And Ringo is quite engaged in this. And he's like, well, we're not really sure. We just, you know, he seems to seem it was just a casual decision. Whereas, you know, for part of the interview, Paul trots out, oh, the Beatles are a great little band. And Ringo just laughs in Paul's face. It's brilliant. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he just, yeah. He's like, yeah. shut up, buddy, I'm bet, you know. Yeah. Um, I mean, you do, it is that sense that, you know, if it, you, they all, you know, all of the Beatles have had set responses. Yeah. But Ringo, Ringo is the one that you're much more likely to get an honest response from. Yes. And he, he's still, I think, for all that Paul talks about, we were a great little band, Ringo is still the, their biggest fan. Absolutely. You know I know you absolutely see it there, you know. And, and uh, slightly, still slightly uh, mystified as to, to how it happened and how he <laughs> ended up where he is. I but mean, very grateful have, that it happened. I'm grateful for it, yeah. Um, the the other, you know, it, it, the whole 50th anniversary of Ed Sullivan also, uh, you know, again, CBS were pushing the angle that it got broadcast on CBS. Letterman is a CBS broadcaster. Uh, and there was also a CBS roundtable discussion from the floor of the Ed Sullivan Theatre, which had the oddest collection of guests, uh, which I'm just going to read out here, which was uh, Mick Jones from Foreigner, John Oates from Holland. Uh, Andrew Oldham, Niall Rogers, Julie Taymor, Patty Boyd and good old Neil Innes all sitting on the, the, the stage of the Ed Sullivan Theatre being interviewed about what it all means, you know. And no Mitzi Gaynor, they missed the trick. They should have got Mitzi Gaynor, but they, maybe, should have maybe, got, they, should have, they should have had a special on the following week from Miami. That from Miami. Been, that's what but they should you have know, done. That, that's, they, they should have had people who were there, yeah. uh, you know, other artists on the show. Maybe all those other artists were go, would be going, oh, it was the worst night of my life because <laughs> they wiped us know, out. They, they wiped the floor with us and we, no one was interested. But we're, we're still living with the ramifications of the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. So the Ed Sullivan Theatre is now the home of Stephen Colbert's Late Show. And in 2019, to introduce the uh, South Korean uh, K-pop band BTS uh, to America for their first live television appearance. They dressed up as the Beatles. Colbert dressed up as Ed Sullivan because BTS is in the word Beatles. They even used the logo. They used the monogram. And the executive producer of Colbert at the time said, you know, many musical guests come on the show and they want to ape the Beatles and we won't let them. But we allowed BTS to do it because there were parallels of 
uh, a foreign band being introduced to an American audience. And so the entire BTS performance is in black and white, in Beatles suits, uh, doing their thing. I won't hear a word against BTS. They're very good. I, 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 I heard lots of words there. But I know, I know, I know what those words mean individually. But when you put them together in that order, I, I wasn't entirely clear. But I'll, I'll find a thirteen-year-old. We'll, we'll stick up some links to the uh, BTS on Stephen Colbert. Uh, you know, but all roads lead back to the seismic performance of the Beatles on Ed Sullivan back in 1964. But what do you think, folks? Uh, how many listeners out there saw it go out live? We'd love to talk to you in all the usual places. We're on Twitter at Beatles Pod. We've the Nothing Is Real Facebook group. And now we have nothingisrealpod.com, which is your gateway to all things uh, Nothing Is Real. We have all our playlists up there. We've got YouTube links up there. We're going to put some exclusive content uh, up there as well. And there's other ways to get in touch and support the podcast. Um, all available on Nothing Is Real Pod. Dot com. I'm I'm really interested to see if there's anyone gets in touch that has seen that. I'm really looking forward to Dan yeah. Aykroyd getting in touch. <laughs> He's, yeah, I mean, you know, he might be. He, uh, you know, I'd say Dan Aykroyd would have some stories if he does want to come on, I, on the I podcast. Have to say, I have Dan Aykroyd would like to come on the podcast. I I'm prepared to watch the Blues Brothers before he gets here. That seems like a, a fair trade. Um, but yeah, let us know what you think, folks. And uh, again, hopefully, we'll drive you back to. Uh, some crazy YouTube clips and to listening to all that music all over again. Uh, but as usual, uh, thanks for listening. My name's Jason Carty. My name's Stephen Cockcroft. And this has been Nothing Is Real. See you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.